we are in a series uh, entitled, Why Do We Believe That? We are actually in week nine. It's hard to believe how quickly time flies when you're having fun. Why do you believe that? We're, we're studying systematic theology, which is just a big fancy word for we're using a system to study God and everything about God and his creation and his word and himself and his church and all things pertaining to life if you're a born-again believer. We're studying what we believe as Christians. Today, we're going to be studying the doctrine of sin. So, what I want to do is just start with a quick recap. Let's just, let's just look at where we've been before we go forward with the doctrine of sin. We studied the doctrine of the Word of God. What's so important about the doctrine of the Word of God? Well, what's so important about the Word of God is it's the foundation of everything we know and believe. If you get this wrong, guess what? This is the foundation. If you get this wrong, the house is going to fall. So we studied the doctrine of the Word of God. The Word of God is God-breathed. It's God's revealed plan, God's revealed will for all of humanity and all of creation, and he gave us a printed form of that. We studied the doctrine of the Word. We then uh, looked at the existence and attributes of God. There is a God. If you believe that, shout amen. amen. There is only one God. Amen. amen. And we studied his existence, and we studied his attributes, his characteristics. Who is he? What is he like? And then we moved on to the doctrine of creation. That's where we show up, all right? God created all that we know in six days. He rested the seventh. God is involved in his creation and through his creation, which is the doctrine of providence. God is a sovereign God. God is totally and completely in control of all things at all times, and he providentially, through providence, is working in and through his creation to bring about his purpose for all of eternity. So today, week nine, we move into the doctrine of sin. Now then, two months ago, roughly two months ago, when we started this series, I was telling this to Michelle last night, I didn't have a clue where we would wind up the week before Christmas. I didn't have a clue. We just dived into this and started going forward. But it couldn't have worked out any better, given that this is the Sunday before Christmas, where we celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ. So admittedly, uh, this morning, I'm, I'm not going to preach a baby Jesus in the manger message. I'm, I'm not going to do that. We're going to stay on track with what we're doing with our doctrine studies. However, I believe you'll see pretty quickly that providentially God had a hand in the message I was going to preach today I believe you'll see that this message is very very fitting when it comes to the theme of Christmas so grab your listening guides and let's dig in I want to start with a question this morning don't you love questions yeah I love interactions I want to know you're listening so this is a rhetorical question I'm, I'm not looking for an answer don't want you to shout it out don't want you to say it aloud don't want you to raise your hand or anything. Just a rhetorical question, just to get you mind thinking about where we're going on the doctrine of sin. Amidst all of the problems in the world, and there are many problems, what would you say is the most serious problem humanity is facing today? Now just do on that for just a moment. Amidst all of the problems in the world, 
What is the most serious problem humanity faces today? If you're like me, you, you, you watch the news. Not a whole lot, but you watch the news. You, you follow Twitter, you follow Parler, or, um, you read the newspapers, you talk to classmates, you talk to co-workers. What are they saying? What are they saying about what the most pressing problem for humanity today is? Well, I'm sure some of you would hear these answers. Some would say it's the pandemic we're in. Some would say that it's the integrity of our election process. That's a hot topic today. Some would say religious freedom, the environment, global warming, racism, health care, social justice issues, immigration, political corruption, education. And the list goes on and on and on, doesn't it? Lots of problems in the world today, a lot of pressing problems. And to be honest, out of that list, and that list could have went on and on and on, but in all honesty, there's a good amount of truth in each one of those answers, right? Those are concerns. Those are problems. But this is where the Bible, this is where God's Word you can turn to Genesis chapter 3 if you want to. This is where the Bible steps up to the microphone. And, and the Bible silences the discord of cultural voices. And the Bible declares that humanity's most pressing problem is not structural. It's moral. It's moral. It's not the structure of society. It's the moral condition of Society that is the most pressing problem humanity is facing today. It's, it's, it's not out there. It's in here. Okay? It's not out there. It's not a problem that can be solved out there. It's a problem that has to be fixed in here. Humanity's most pressing problem is sin. And the biggest problem with sin is found in the spelling of it. There's an S on the beginning, an N at the end of it, and right in the middle is a what? Bingo. Bingo. The most pressing problem facing humanity today is sin, and it begins with I. If I would fix, if I would, if I would find, discover, receive and practice the fix for me and every other person of humanity did the same thing guess what would happen out there be a wonderful world wouldn't it be a wonderful world but that's not going to happen this side of eternity so let's begin this morning with the fact of sin the fact of sin contrary to what anyone and say anyone Contrary to what anyone thinks, believes, or says, humanity's most pressing problem is sin. Some people may still have to ask, well, preacher, what is sin? Exactly what is sin? I've, I've heard that this is sin. I've heard that that is sin. I've heard it described many ways by many different people. But what is sin? Well, the best place to discover what sin is is go to the foundation. Go to God's Word. 
God's word says that sin is falling short of God's standard. God has a moral standard in its perfection. And anything short of God's standard is sin. Any thought, any words, any actions, anything we do that is short of God's standard is sin. Sin is rebelling against God in his moral absolutes. Sin is what has everyone, say me, and everything in a mess. Sin is what has everyone and everything all messed up and in turn is what has the structures of society so messed up. So the problem of sin is there's a standard. The problem of sin is there's a standard. But that creates another problem, doesn't it? That creates a whole new problem in and of itself. Here in the 21st century, we live in a culture where sin no longer makes sense. Nobody wants to address sin. Nobody wants to talk about sin. Nobody wants to confess that they are a sinner. And that's a problem. In today's culture, sin is labeled as oppressive, repressive. It's offensive. It's negative. And the problem with this line of thinking is when you misunderstand and or ignore the disease, you'll never, ever, ever arrive at a cure. If you declare you're not sick, even though you're sick, you'll never seek medical help to find the cure. Am I right or am I wrong? And if you never, ever, ever admit you have a sin problem, you'll never look for the solution of the sin problem, and you'll remain dead in your trespasses and sins, and you'll live this life, and you'll die, and you'll wake up at judgment throne of God, and God will say to you, Depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. And you will be cast into the lake of fire to spend all of eternity with all other, all other believers and Satan and the fallen angels for all of eternity. This is the problem of sin. Sin suggests that there's a standard. Sin says there's a standard. That's why we as the church, if you're part of the church, say amen. amen. Now, I didn't say, are you in a church? I said, are you part of the church? And I, I'm not asking, are you a member? I'm saying, are you a blood-bought, born-again, Holy Spirit, redeemed child of the living God? Say amen. amen. That's why we as the church call abortion evil. Because there's a standard. Because there's a standard. We call lying, murder, and adultery evil because God's word says that's evil sin has a standard we call pedophilia evil because God's word says that's evil we call the LGBTQ plus movement evil because God's word calls that evil because God has a perfect moral standard we call these things and many more things evil because God's Word defines them as evil. Now, when we stand upon God's moral code, when we stand upon the Word of God, we will be called hateful. We will be called ridiculous. We'll be labeled every way known to be labeled. They'll call us oppressive. 
They'll call us mean. They'll come at you every way they can for simply believing in God, trusting in God, being born again by God, and standing on God's moral absolutes. That will make you an enemy of this society because you are an enemy of this society. Jesus said, if you come follow me, if you take up your cross and deny yourself and follow me every day, this world is going to hate you because it hates me. And because you're associated with me, you will be hated. So tomorrow morning, December the 21st, when you get out of the bed, just expect to be hated if you love Jesus. And don't lose no sleep over the fact. Our culture, secular society, in a quest for freedom, they say, in a quest for freedom from the eyes of God, has traded the perfect, divine, the, the perfect divine standard for the shifting standards of what makes individuals feel uncomfortable or emotionally harmed, which ironically never leads to liberty. It leads to anarchy. In contrast, Christianity teaches that sin is falling short of God's standard and rebelling against God and His moral absolutes regardless of how that makes you feel. Hey, I'm a born-again believer. I've been saved for the past 44 years. Yes, that makes me old. I've been saved for 44 years. I was saved at the age of 10 years old. God's Word still makes me feel uncomfortable. When I'm reading Scripture, in January 1, 2021, when I dig into my annual Bible reading plan, I'm going to run across Scripture that hurts my feelings, that steps on my toes, that pokes me in the eye, that punches me in the gut and the diaphragm and knocks the wind out of me. But it's going to help me. It's going to bless me. It's going to show me where I'm falling short of God's glorious standard and it's going to challenge me to repent of all of my sins again and turn from my wicked ways and turn toward Him in repentance, loving Him supremely, loving others as much as I love myself. It'll make me a better, effective child of God and Christian. Therefore, sin is the only way that makes sense of this messed up world we live in. Did you know that sin is a biblical story? Sin in the biblical story. We, we see evident nature. We see the evident nature of God's standard because sin is a central aspect of the grand storyline throughout the entire Bible. Throughout the entire Bible. You know, we've, we've studied the doctrine of the Word. We've studied the doctrine of creation. We've studied God and His attributes. And so the question is, as we, as we browse through this, how do we go from everything being good? Me and Pastor Darrell was talking about this before service started. How do we go from everything being good, good, good in Genesis 1 and 2 to being expelled from the garden in Genesis chapter 3? To murder in chapter 4 to the refrain of Genesis 5 being and they died and they died and they died 
and they died. To the flood in Genesis 6 through 9, the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, and on and on and on. And the answer is the sin that's in Genesis chapter 3. That's where it all goes wrong. In fact, sin is such a dominant concern in the Old Testament that the writers of the Old Testament actually had to use several words in the Hebrew language to try to fully capture what sin really is and what sin really means. The most common word they chose for sin in the Hebrew language occurs about 600 times. That's a bunch. It carries the sense of missing the target, failing, falling short of the goal. The second most common term for sin, and you notice I'm not trying to pronounce these because it's the Hebrew language, and I am not a theologian, and I'm not an expert, and I'm not even a novice in the Hebrew language. The second most common term for sin in the Hebrew language is translated iniquity. In, in older translations, and wickedness or perversion in the newer translations. It has the root meaning of bending or twisting. Sin is bending or twisting the truth. Presenting the image of distortion. A third term for sin is usually rendered transgression, revolt or rebellion the word crime anybody ever heard the word crime the word crime is probably the best equivalent here because sin get this church i hope you know this already sin is criminal behavior against god and his law sinners are criminals they're breaking god's law let's look at isaiah chapter 59 verse 2 but your sins have separated you from your God. They have caused him to turn his face away from you so he won't listen to you. Do you see the seriousness of sin? Your sins, not their sins, not his sins, he's sinless, but my sins separate me from God. They cause God to turn his face away from me so he doesn't listen I'll be honest with you. I have a lot of scary thoughts, don't you? But the most scary thought that I can imagine that would ever pass through a human being's mind would be, I am cut off from Almighty God, the Creator. Is that not a scary thought? The God, God the Creator, the Sustainer, the providential loving God of heaven who, who tells my heart to beat and who gives me oxygen and gives me life, that I'm going to be separated from Him? Sin, in short, is elevating oneself to the place that only God can fill. This was the structural foundation of the first temptation. Genesis 3, 5, You will be like God, the serpent said. Aren't you thankful today that there's a solution to sin? There's a solution to sin, and His name is Jesus. If you believe that, shout amen. amen. There is a solution to sin, 
and his name is Jesus. He is the sinless Savior of the world. The only solution to the problem of sin, let me say that again, the only solution to the problem of sin is Christ and Christ alone. Listen to what John the Baptist said when he first saw Jesus in John chapter 1, verse 29. It says, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him. John said, look, the Lamb of God. Now get this. He takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is the solution to sin. John knew this. This is why the Son of God was named Jesus. In Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 21, she, Mary, is going to have a son. You must, the angel said. God told me to tell you, Mary, you must give your baby the name Jesus. That's because he will save his people. Amen. Is this a Christmas message or is this a Christmas message? I was telling Michelle last night, the Sunday before Christmas, the, the Sunday before we celebrate his birth, we're talking about the most pressing problem facing humanity today. It's sin. Guess what we're going to preach about next week if the Lord tarries is coming? The doctrine of the Lord Jesus Christ, the solution for sin. Who is he? What does he do? Is that not marvelous how God works the timing of all these things out? We were talking last night. God determines where I go in my messages. This, this is not my business. This church does not belong to me. I'm not the CEO. I'm not the director. I'm just plain old Steve, born again, saved, redeemed, filled with the Holy Spirit. And God has called me to be a pastor, a teacher, a preparer of Christians to go do the work of ministry. And God plans all this out. I was just reminiscing last night. This time last year, we were in a, in a series called The 40 Days of Prayer. And you remember, week after week, I come to the pulpit and I said, 2020 is going to be a big year. I said, I don't know what's going to happen, but 2020 is going to bring change. Y'all remember that? Little did I know. But I did know in my heart, I, I did know with what the Holy Spirit was communicating to me in the messages God was having me to preach that God was leading us. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And there's no clauses after that. If the Lord is our shepherd, we shall not want. Even in the midst of, of a pandemic, he leads me beside still waters. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He restores my soul. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death or a pandemic, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you're with me. Your rod and your staff, you comfort me. And even in the presence of my enemies, you prepare a table before me. And God says, come on, Steve, have a seat. Father, do you not see all the enemies and everything we're facing out there? And he says, I do, but guess what? I've got this. Let's sit down in fellowship. Let's eat a meal together. He anoints my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, for certain, for an absolute truth, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Why? Because the Lord is my shepherd. 
The next day, John saw Jesus coming. He said, look, the Lamb of God, he takes away the sins of the world. Mm. Now, that's the solution. Jesus is the only solution to sin. But to appreciate the salvation that Jesus came and brought to us, we need to go back to the beginning. We need to go back to the fall, and we need to look at the essence of sin. The fall, the essence of sin. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 3. That's why I told you to turn there to Genesis chapter 3. This is where the wheels fall off the bus. This is where we run in the ditch. Actually, this is where we all die. Again, we see that God made the world and everything in it. And in Genesis chapter 1 and in Genesis chapter 2, God says over and over and over again, this is good, this is good, this is good. But then in Genesis chapter 3, 1 through 7, Genesis 3, 1, says the serpent was more clever than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. The serpent said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the garden, planting deception? The woman said to the serpent, We can eat of the fruit of the trees that are in the garden. But God said, But, but God did say, You must not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden. Do not even touch it. If you do, finish it up for me. Have they been properly warned? Have they, have they been educated? Did, did God not say it plainly? I mean, God's not beating around the bush. You eat of that, you're going to die. That's what he said. And then he said, you can be sure that you won't die. That's what the clever snake said, the serpent, Satan. You can be sure you won't die, the serpent said to the woman. God knows that when you eat the fruit of the tree, you will know things you've never known before. You will be able to tell the difference between good and evil. You will be like God. Verse 6, the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good to eat. It was also pleasing to look at. And it would make a person wise. So she took some of the fruit and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then both of them knew things they had never known. It's not always good to know things you don't know. Huh? Is there not an old saying that says ignorance is bliss? Verse 7, then both of them knew things they had never known before. They realized they were naked in more ways than one. So they sewed fig leaves together and made clothes for themselves, trying to find for themselves a solution to sin. But we know that Jesus is the only solution for sin. So what we just read described how sin tragically entered the human condition. Prior to this, Adam and Eve is perfect. They're sinless. It explains the prevalence of our sinful condition. And it prepares us for how the God of creation shows himself to also be the God of redemption. 
Not only is he the God of creation, he is the God of redemption. The first sin, the eating of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, teaches us three things that I want to show you this morning. Three things about all sin in general. First, I want you to notice that sin sought to redefine the basis for knowledge. Now just imagine, and we're not, and I'm not even pretending to say we are, just as a ridiculous example, just pretend that we're computers and God created us as computers. He programmed us with the information he wanted us to have, and the information we had was adequate to live life and do life for all of eternity, right? But sin entered the picture, and it sought to redefine the basis for knowledge. Sin came along and said, you don't know enough, you need to know more. It gave a different answer to the question, what is truth? You know, today's culture is asking that question every single day. What is true? What is truth? Whereas God had said to Adam and Eve, you will die if you eat from that tree. Truth. And the serpent said, you won't die. Lie. But Eve decided to disbelieve and disobey God deny his word and conduct an experiment of her own to see whether God really spoke the truth or not. I've done that before, haven't you? Steve, don't touch that glowing orange circle on top of the stove. It will burn you. Mama told the truth. It hurt for a long time. Why can't we just take truth for truth and obey truth? I'm going to tell you. Folks, please be aware. Please be aware of this. That one of Satan's most effective tools is to convince people that God's word is not trustworthy. That's the battle going on in our culture today that this word is not truth. It's a clever story. I mean, you can learn some good things from it. But culture is saying it's not truth. It's not truth. Sin says you can't follow God's word. It'll, it'll lead you astray. It'll rob you of your freedoms. It'll rob you of the ability to truly enjoy life life will be so much better if you ignore god and ignore god's truth that's the lie of sin that's the lie of satan sin begins with believing a lie instead of believing god now i need you to please keep this in mind i first heard this saying that i'm about to say to you when I first began to pastor, I'm in my late 20s. I'm pastoring down in the edge of Morgan County. Morgan County is where Brushy Mountain State Penitentiary was located until it closed down. And we was in a building program at the church, building a new sanctuary, actually building a brand-new church building, a two-story church building. And Brushy Mountain had a work release program that... Uh, inmates who were well behaved and who had skills and was about to be released 
came out and did free labor for us. They built the entire church building for us free of charge. All we had to do was supply the materials. And one of those workers had been called to preach while in prison, and he was so well behaved that some Sunday mornings they would allow him to go out with a guard and preach in the community. So I learned this saying from an inmate at Brushy Mountain State Penitentiary. I believe he knew what he was talking about. Here's what he said that Sunday morning. I'll never forget this. First time I ever heard it. He said, sin will take you farther than you want to go. Sin will cost you more than you want to pay. And sin will keep you longer than you want to stay. From an inmate at a state penitentiary. He knew what he was talking about. He had come to grips with his sin. Number two, sin sought to redefine at the basis of moral standards. Now, not only did sin seek to redefine the basis of knowledge, sin sought to redefine the basis for moral standards. It gave a different answer to the question, well, what is right? The, the first one is, what is true? Well, what is right? God had said that it was morally wrong for Adam and Eve to eat from the free, fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But the serpent, the, the, the serpent, Satan, he suggested that it wouldn't be morally wrong to eat the fruit and that in eating it, Adam and Eve would become like God. And so what did Adam and Eve do? Eve trusted her own evaluation of what's right. Eve trusted her own evaluation of what truth is instead of allowing God's Word to declare what was truth and refusing to allow God's Word to tell her what was right. gave a different answer to the question. The application here is to be aware, be keenly aware of self-made morality. I don't have the answers by myself, and you don't have the answers in and of yourself. Number three, number three, sin sought to redefine the basis of for identity, the basis for identity. It gave a different answer to the question, who am I? You ever find yourself asking that question in life? Who am I? Who am I really? You're a creation of Lord God Almighty. That's who you are. And if you're a Christian, you're a child of the Most High God. That's who you are. The correct answer is Adam and Eve are God's creatures Listen, fully dependent upon Him and always to be in submission to Him, always to be subordinate to Him as their Creator and their Lord. But Eve and then Adam succumbed to the temptation to do what? Become like God. To become like God. Thus attempting, and notice I said only attempting, to elevate themselves to the place of God. 
for what is sin. Sin is forsaking God in order to find in yourself what you were meant to find in God. It's looking for love in all the wrong places. It's looking for truth in all the wrong places. But Adam and Eve chose to disobey and therefore became flawed. And because of their sin, here's what God did. God is a God of His Word. And because of their sin, God cursed them, God cursed mankind, and God cursed all of creation with the sentence of death. God said, if you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. Just like He told them. So what do we have today because of Adam and Eve's sin? We have suffering, we have sickness, we have death, we have natural disasters, we have pandemics. None of these existed prior to Genesis chapter 3. Prior to Genesis chapter 3, it was good, and it was good, and it was good. Let's move on to the origin of sin. The origin of sin so again, this raises a very challenging question. How and when did sin originate? We see in Genesis chapter 3 the first human sin. We also see the serpent wickedly tempting Adam and Eve. So there had to be more to the story than what we've seen so far. Surely the serpent was sinning and doing what he was doing, wasn't he? He was tempting Adam and Eve to come away from God. That would be sinful, wouldn't it? Because it's against God's moral law. So as we discussed last week, first and foremost, we have to, we must insist that sin does not originate with God. Please say amen right there. Sin does not originate with God. Sin and evil in biblical theology are totally alien to God. Habakkuk 1.13, his eyes are too pure to look on evil. 1 John 1.5, he is light, in him is no darkness at all. James 1.13, God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt you with evil. Look with me at Deuteronomy 32 verse 4. He is the rock. Say, He is the rock. Amen. God is the rock. The Lord Jesus Christ is the rock. His works are perfect. All of His ways are right. He is faithful. He doesn't do anything wrong. He is honest and fair. Now, what I just gave you were just hints. What I gave you were just hints in Scripture that prior to this moment in the garden of Genesis chapter 3, prior to the fall, prior to the temptation, there had been a previous fall amongst some of the angels in heaven. Not much is said about what happened or why it happened. Just not a lot of scripture there. The closest we may get is, June, is Jude verse 6. Jude verse 6 says some of the angels didn't stay where they belonged. They didn't keep their positions of authority. The Lord has kept those angels in darkness. They are held by chains that last forever. On judgment day, God will judge them. Then the apostle Peter, in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, says God did not spare angels when they sinned. All sin has consequences. You believe that? God did not spare angels when they sinned. Instead, he sent them to hell. He put them in dark prisons. He will keep them there until he 
judges them. Now, similar to what happened with Adam and Eve, it seems these angels were not satisfied with their proper place. They were not satisfied with where the Creator put them. Sound familiar in life? God put me here. I don't much like it here, so I'm going to change things. Sin. Sin. These angels were not satisfied with their proper place but desired what? To climb the ladder. Huh? What does American culture teach you? Oh, we're, we live in America, the, the land of dreams. You can climb and climb and climb and you can become more, more, more wealthy and more wealthy and more wealthy and more popular and more popular and more popular and more successful and more successful and more successful and more powerful and more powerful and more powerful and every bit of that is called sin the American dream is based upon sin well, Steve, why would you say that? Where would you get such a ridiculous notion? The Apostle Paul said, I have found myself to be in great want because that's where providential God placed me. And I have found myself to have plenty because that's where providential God placed me for that season. But Paul said, I've learned to be content with wherever God has me and with whatever God has me with. I've learned to be content in my proper place where Almighty God wants me to be. That's the kingdom dream. That's God's kingdom dream. God, I want to be everything you want me to be where you put me with what you place at my disposal. God, that's who I want to be and that's what I want to do. That's the kingdom dream. Pride and conceit bred what? Rebellion. Pride and conceit bred rebellion. Now listen carefully. Please don't, under, please don't misunderstand this. Satan is not some secondary deity warring against God. Religi religions will teach you that. That's false religions. Satan is not a secondary deity Satan is not a lesser God warring against the God. Christianity is not dualistic in that sense. We know for absolute certain that there's only one God, Jehovah God. Satan is just a fallen creature. Satan is just a created being. He's just a sinful angel. This means that Satan's fall and Adam and Eve's subsequent fall, which is the fall that the Bible focuses on most because it affects us all, both occurred according to the sovereign plan of God. It was part of God's plan. So let's slow down and think about this carefully. The Bible insists, say insists, the Bible insists that God is sovereign, so sovereign that nothing that takes place in the universe can escape the outermost boundary of His sovereign control. Let's look at Romans eleven thirty six. 36. God did not, all things come from Him. 
All things come from Him. All things are directed by Him. All things are for His good. May God be given the glory forever. Amen. One, two, three times. I see the word all. All things come from Him. All things are directed by Him. All things are for His good. May God be given glory forever. Now, the Bible insists that God is the very standard of goodness. God is the very standard of goodness. That, that's why theologians suggest that God stands behind good in such a way that everything good can be ultimately attributed or accredited to Him and that He also stands behind evil in such a way that, what all, that all that happens that is evil is inevitably contributed or credited to secondary agents. Remember last week we talked about those train tracks? We talked about the things God does and the things that humanity does and because of his providential care they're tied together and all things work out for our good and his glory that's what we're seeing right here we saw last week in the story of Job that Satan had no power over Job without God's sanction remember remember there in Job chapter 1 Satan have you considered my servant Job who was it that told Satan to go and do what he did to Job? It was God, part of God's plan. Yet God is never the one who does evil. He's never the author of sin. He, he governs all that happens, yet he's never done wrong. He never does wrong. He can't do wrong. And although this is a mystery, and it is a mystery, it is a great mystery. And while we know that the existence of evil and God's goodness or sovereignty are, are compatible truths, Scripture doesn't reveal fully how they go together. Therefore, we don't pretend to know and understand that fully. So at best, at best we would be presuming, if, if not being arrogant, to claim that we know and fully understand hidden things in order to be like God. Remember the original sin was Adam and Eve wanting to know more? They wanted to know things that hadn't been revealed to them. That was the quest of the original sin. So we take what God has said and, and we get everything we can out of it and we allow the Holy Spirit to teach us everything there is to know about it. But listen, we're going to leave here with some mystery still intact. And we're not going to fully understand until we get home. It pays high and eternal dividends to acknowledge and practice the fact that we're the creatures and God's the creator. So that's the nature of sin and the beginning of sin. But let's see how the Bible says that sin has affected us. We'll finish up today by looking at seven statements, a theology of sin. A theology of sin, seven statements. The first one. The first one is inherited guilt. Inherited guilt. We are counted guilty because of Adam's sin. You say, preacher, I don't like that. I don't either. But we got to get over it. Because it's the truth. Because it's the truth. In Romans chapter 5 and verse 12, it says, Sin entered the world because one man sinned. And death came because of sin. Everyone sinned, so death came to all people. 
Now, Paul teaches that when Adam sinned, God reckoned the guilt of Adam's sin to all people who would eventually descend from Adam. That's the way God did it. And though we didn't exist at the time, God, looking down through the, looking out through history and looking out through the annals of time, here's what God did. God knew everybody that would exist, and God knew that everybody existed from Adam forward would sin because they inherited guilt from Adam. Therefore, he counted us guilty just like Adam. Romans 5, 18 and 19 one man's sin brought guilt to all people. That ain't fair. It's truth. One man's sin brought guilt to all people, so also one right act made all people right with God. So if you argue the fact that the first part of that verse is not fair, then you can't claim the second part of that verse, okay? And we'll talk about that more in just a minute. One man's sin brought guilt to all people, so also one right act made all people right with God, and all who are right with God will live many people were made sinners because one man did not obey but one man did obey that's why many people will be made right with God now what Paul meant what Paul means is that all members of the human race was represented by Adam in the time of testing in the garden of Eden like it or not I didn't vote for him. You didn't either. But he was Adam. He was the first man, and he represented all of humanity. And as our representative, Adam sinned, and therefore God counted all of us guilty in Adam in the sense that Adam represented the entire human race. Now, some thinkers, we'll call them, some thinkers have pushed back on this idea of representation, and that's okay. And that's okay, like I said a moment ago. But if you think it's unfair for us to be represented by Adam, then you should also think it's unfair for us to be represented by Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. God didn't leave us dead in our trespasses and sins. God was the creator, but God is also the redeemer. Can I get an amen? It's exactly what Paul points out in Romans chapter 5, where God deals with us either as represented by Adam... We're going to leave out of this world either being represented by Adam or being represented by Jesus Christ. You choose. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall what? Shall be saved. Shall be saved. Again, Romans 5, 19. Many people were made sinners because one man did not obey, but one man did obey. This is why many people are made right with God. Number two. Inherited corruption. Inherited corruption. Not only inherited guilt, but inherited corruption. We have a sinful nature because of Adam's sin. I've said this time and time and time again. Go back there in the nursery and watch if you don't believe me. If you've never had kids or grandkids yourself, you don't have to teach those little ones to act like little ones. They come out of the womb full of it. Am I right or am I wrong? You don't have to teach them to scratch and bite and scream and holler and, and do all sorts of those things. They're born with it. Why? They inherited the sin nature. They inherited rebellion. In addition to the legal guilt that God imputes to us because of Adam's sin, we also inherited a sinful nature because of Adam's sin. It means we were born corrupt. 
And therefore, we commit actual sins. And in doing so, we prove, we confirm that we inherited it from Adam. We, we inherited guilt, and by our sins, because of our inherited corruption, when we sin, we prove that we really did inherit it from Adam, don't we? Look at Psalm verse 51 and verse 5. The psalmist said, I know, say no, K-N-O-W, no. I know I've been a sinner ever since I was born. I've been a sinner ever since my mother became pregnant with me. We were sinners nine months before we ever born. David is so overwhelmed with the consequences of his own sin that he looks back at his life and he realizes that he was sinful from the beginning. Look at Psalm 58, verse 3. Even from birth, those who are evil go down the wrong path. From the day they are born, they go the wrong way and speak lies. Speak lies. Number three. Number three, total depravity. You can kick, fuss, scream, disagree with the doctrine of total depravity, but it's what the Bible teaches. Total depravity says in our natural state we lack spiritual, spiritual good before God. From conception forward, in and of our own selves, we have no worthiness and we are morally bankrupt. We're born spiritually dead in our trespasses and sin. Dead. Born spiritually dead. Not spiritually lame, not spiritually sick. We're born spiritually dead. Say dead. Spiritually dead. Again, this doesn't mean that people are as bad as they could be or that we've lost the image of God. We're still created in the image of God. We still bear His image. And people can do deeds uh, that are on one level very good and very kind. But because prior to the new birth, get this, we're enemies of God. Would you agree with that? Prior to being saved and born again, humanity are enemies against God. If you believe that, say amen. So people who are not saved can do good things, but these good things they're doing, they're not doing them to honor God, so they really can't be counted as being good things. That's why the Bible says there's none good, no, not one. Only God, only Jesus. The only way we are good people is when we become born again and we inherit God's goodness, that makes us good people. Outside of that, there are no good people on the planet. And that's not mean and hateful. That's just the truth. That's just the truth. Robert Raymond summarizes this doctrine well. He says, Man, in his raw state, as he comes from the womb, is morally and spiritually corrupt in disposition and character. Every part of his being, his mind, his will, his emotions, his affections, his conscience, his body has been affected by sin. That is what is meant by the doctrine of total depravity. He goes on to say, his understanding is darkened. His mind is at enmity with God. His will is to act as, his will to act is slave to his darkened understanding, rebellious mind. His heart is corrupt. His emotions are perverted. His affections naturally gravitate to that which is evil and ungodly. His conscience is untrustworthy and his body is subject to mortality. We see this taught from cover to cover in God's word, folks. Genesis chapter 5, verse 5 and 6. 
the Lord saw how bad the sins of man had become on the earth. All, say all, all the thoughts in his heart were always directed only toward what is evil. Do you believe that? Look at verse 6. The Lord was very sad that he had made man. His heart was filled with pain. Let's look at Psalm 14, verses 2 and 3. The Lord looks down from heaven on all people. He wants to see if there are any who understand. He wants to see if there are any who trust in God. Look what the Bible says. All of them. How many? All of them have turned away. They have all become what? We can't argue with Scripture, can we, church? All are evil. No one does anything good. No one at all. You say, Brother Steve, I've got neighbors that live down the road from me, and they're lost and dead, and they're trespasses and sin, and they're good people. No, they're not. They're evil. They're dead in their trespasses and sins. And I'm not saying be ugly and judgmental toward them. Show them mercy. Show them grace. Love them and care about them enough to tell them about the love of Jesus Christ and what he did on Calvary. Tell them about Jesus and pray the Holy Spirit draws them to salvation and they become new born-again believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Have pity upon the lost people. Have pity upon those that God says are evil. Let's look at Isaiah 64, 6. Again, all of us have become someone who is unclean. All of the good things we do are like polluted rags to you, filthy rags. All of us are like leaves that have dried up. Our sins sweep us away like the wind. Paul tells Christians what their nature was before being regenerated by the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, you were, say were, in the past, Christians, in the past, you were living in your sins and lawless ways, but in fact, you were what? You used to live as sinners. You used to, in the past, when you followed the ways of this world, you served the one who rules over the spiritual forces of evil. That would be Satan, wouldn't it? You served him. He is the spirit who is now at work in those who don't obey God. Verse 3, at one time we all lived among them. We all lived among them because we were of them. We tried to satisfy what our sinful nature wanted. Climbing that ladder, living the American dream. That's what we chased after. That's what we wanted. We followed its longings and thoughts. God was angry with us and everyone else because of the kind of people we were. We're no longer that way, are we? Because we've been saved and redeemed. Number four, total inability. Total depravity means we're totally unable in our actions. We are unable to do spiritual good before God. Now, in great error, please do not ever share the gospel like this again if you've ever done so. You've heard this. I've heard this. In great error, the gospel's been explained this way. Humanity is drowning in the ocean of sin. And loving God comes along and throws humanity a lifeline. And if we will but reach up out of the waves and cling to that lifeline, God will pull us to safety. That's a lie. That's a lie. 
if we're totally depraved, if we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Have you ever watched a movie or a crime series on TV and, and someone kills someone and they take them and dump them in the bay? Have you ever saw that? So if you really and truly drop a dead person in the bay and come back the next day and throw them a lifeline, Steve! Steve, I've thrown out a lifeline. Grab it, buddy. I'll pull you out. What's the likelihood of Steve grabbing the lifeline and being pulled to safety? Why? Huh? Amen. The Bible's not kidding when it says we were born dead in our trespasses in sin. We can't want to be saved. We're dead. We don't want to be saved. We're dead. Well, Brother Steve, how do we become saved? When the Word of God goes forth and the Holy Spirit convicts a dead man or a dead woman or a dead boy or a dead girl in their sins, when Holy Spirit conviction sets in on them, that puts the desire in us to be saved. The Holy Spirit comes and first regenerates the dead spirit on the inside of an individual. When I was 10 years old at Vacation Bible School at Columbia Hill Baptist Church, I was dead in my trespasses and sins, and the Holy Spirit came and pricked my heart and said, you're dead in your trespasses and sins, you need to be saved. And He regenerated my heart and gave my heart life and gave me the desire to be saved, gave me the ability to be saved gave me the words to call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved it's all a work of God or it's not a work of God at all for by grace you have been saved through faith what's the next part not of yourselves am I preaching you the truth or am I preaching you the truth we're incapable of approaching God and doing what he desires. Again, Robert Raymond says, because man is totally and pervasively corrupt, he is incapable of changing his character or acting in a way that is distinct from his corruption. He is unable to discern, to love, to choose the things that are pleasing to God. As Jeremiah the prophet says, can an Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard change his spots? Then neither can you do good who are accustomed to doing evil. Jeremiah 13, 23. Romans 8, 7, and 8. The sinful man is at war with God. Do you see that? The sinner, the person lost, the person dead in their trespasses and sins are at war with God. They do not obey God's law. That mind can't. Those who are controlled by their sinful nature cannot please God, verse 8 says. 1 Corinthians 2, 14. Some people don't have the Holy Spirit. Sad, isn't it? Some people don't have the Holy Spirit. They don't accept the things that come from the Spirit of God. Things like that are foolish to them. They can't understand them. In fact, such things can't be understood without the Spirit help. Why do you, why do you worldly lost people act like you do? Because they don't have the Holy Spirit. They don't understand good. They're not going to do good. Give up hope that the world will ever do good. It's not going to do good. It's going to do bad. It's going to do evil. Wake up, accept that, and smell the roses. Well, then what do we do, Steve? 
We run to them. We run to them in the grace and the mercy and the love of God and we proclaim truth and we live truth. That's the urgency of the gospel. The world is going to hell and they will go to hell if we don't reach them with the word of Almighty God. That's the urgency. That's why we don't just go to church. Do you have a neighbor that's lost without Jesus? Would that not be the best Christmas present ever? Share the gospel with them. Tell them how much God loves them and wants to save them. The God of this world, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, the God of this world has blinded the minds of those who do not believe. They can't see the light of the good news of Christ's glory. He is the likeness of God. Number five, we've got to get done. Number five. All humanity is sinful before God. All humanity is sinful before God. Scripture testifies to the universal sinfulness of mankind and cries, no one is exempt. David said, no one living is righteous before you. Solomon says, there is no one who does not sin. Paul says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All humanity is sinful before God. Number six. Number six, get this, folks. It ain't a cluster of sins. It's not a number of sins. One single sin makes us guilty before God. Has anybody in this room ever sinned guilty before God? Well, it wasn't a bad one. I beg your pardon? As we saw earlier, sin is personal opposition to God. It's not the greatness of the law that makes sin worthy of punishment, but the greatness of the lawgiver. Paul affirms that the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. Number seven, Philip. Let's go to number seven. All humanity, all humanity deserves God's eternal wrath because of our sin. That's the Christmas story. Who's the reason for the season? And, and the angel said, name him Jesus because he will do what for humanity? Save them from their sins. That's Christmas. The greatest gift of John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that never perish but have that's Christmas that's Christmas all humanity deserves God's eternal wrath and punishment because of sin Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 3 at one time we all lived among them. We tried to satisfy what our sinful nature wanted to do. We followed its longings and thoughts. God was angry with us and everyone else because of the kind of people we were. John three thirty six. Please pause and listen to this carefully. If you're in this room, if you're listening online, please listen to this. Anyone who believes in the Son has eternal life. That's Christmas. That's Christmas, the gift. 
of forgiveness, the gift of eternal life. Anyone who believes in the Son has eternal life, but anyone who says no to the Son will not have life. God's anger remains on him. As we come to a close, I'm thinking this is a good place to end. Because it points us forward to what we study next week. The doctrine of Christ. For those who do not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, these harsh and ugly sounds of our, mine, and your sinful nature should honestly lead us to tremble before Almighty God. If you cannot say today unequivocally, I know that I know that I know that I am saved and born again by the grace and mercy of God, you should tremble at this message today. Because God's wrath abides upon you today. And your future is not bright. Your future is what it is today. You are dead in your trespasses and sins. And the best you can hope for is to remain dead in your trespasses and sins, face God as a dead man or a dead woman, and be cast in the lake of fire for all of eternity. But the good news is, God so loved you that he sent Jesus to die for you, and that if you believe upon him, you will never perish, you will never die the second death, you will never be cast in the lake of fire, but you will be given eternal life there was one man and only one man say one man there was one man and only one man who never sinned and his name is Jesus and what we inherited from Adam is forgiven and washed away when we inherit what is given to us through Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior Old things pass away. Behold, all things become new. Instead of hearing the words, Depart from me, you, you workers of iniquity, I never knew you, we will hear, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the glories of heaven. That's Christmas. That's Christmas. Adam disobeyed the Father in the garden, but Jesus obeyed God in the garden of Gethsemane. Adam was exiled from the garden but because of his sin, but Jesus was exiled from God's presence on the cross of Calvary when he took your sin and my sin upon him. What did Jesus do on the cross of Calvary? He drained the cup of God's wrath and absorbed the full shame and guilt and transferred his righteousness to all who believe. But if we fail to see sin as our biggest problem, then Christ's sacrifice just becomes pitiful and useless, doesn't it? But when we rightfully mourn our sin, then we can rightly delight in the Savior. That's what we're going to do next week. Lord willing, we're going to study the person of Christ, Jesus, our beautiful, sinless, matchless, gracious Savior, Lord, and eternal reigning King. Stand with me this morning. As Michelle comes and as they get a song today, here's my question.
Are you really prepared for Christmas? And, and when I say, are you prepared for Christmas, I'm not asking, do you have your Christmas presents bought? I'm not asking, have you got your schedule all lined out where you can be everywhere you need to be at the right time? I'm not asking, do you have your meal prepared and your pies baked and all the goodies done up? I'm not asking you that. I'm asking you, are you ready for Christmas? And the way to be ready for Christmas is to know the reason for the season is Jesus Christ. Do you know Jesus as Lord and Savior of your life? Have you escaped this message today through Jesus Christ? That's the only way to be prepared for Christmas. Would you bow your head and close your eyes with me this morning? And if by God's sovereignty and by God's providential care for you, if God has pricked your heart this morning as a lost individual and if he has regenerated your heart today and spoke life into it giving you the ability to have faith and believe and giving you the ability to believe in your heart and confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ maybe you're watching online today maybe you'll watch later this week or next month or next year or a decade from now if you're watching this message know this we are all guilty of sin and we all deserve death and hell for eternity but God made the way of escape and God made the only way of escape and his name is Jesus Brother Steve what do I need to do about that you need to do what scripture says you need to believe that you have sinned and come short of God's standard and you need to believe that the payment the, the wages for those sins that you've committed against God brought a death sentence upon your life but that God loves you and he made a way that you don't have to spend the rest of your life dead in your sins and you certainly don't have to leave this life dead in your sins you can live the rest of your life from this day forward for the glory and honor of God and on the other side of this life you can enjoy eternity with the saints of God but most importantly God and his son Jesus so today, with your head bowed and your eyes closed, God is wooing you today through the power of the Word and the Holy Spirit. Here's the simplicity of what you need to do. And the Scripture told us today that if you believe in the Son of God, you will have eternal life. Believe Jesus died for me because I'm a sinner. Believe that. Believe that Jesus died on the cross 2,000 years ago and three days later God spoke him out of that grave and he's alive today and he's sitting at the right hand of the Father preparing a place for you and me. Believe that today. And right now, with the simplicity of human words, just whisper these words to the Father, to the Savior right now. Jesus, you are my Lord. The Bible says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Turn away from your old way of living and turn in repentance toward God and vow to follow him from here to heaven. In the precious name of Jesus, amen.